I'm Bill Thompson, and this is Eye on Books. We know the power of prayer to heal and comfort, but what if someone wanted to use that power to afflict and kill? Philip Kerr's new psychological thriller, Prayer, poses that uncomfortable question. Gil Martins, an agent with the FBI's Domestic Terrorism Unit in Houston, confronts the violence generated by extremism every day. But even he is not fully prepared for what he encounters when confronted with evidence of a serial killer who's calling on the very power of God to dispatch well-known atheists. Now we should tell people, prayer, Bernie Gunther's on hiatus. This is a standalone. He's, a, he's on holiday at the moment. Yeah, he's, he needs, he's got a well-deserved uh, vacation, I think, for a while. Yes, this is a standalone, um, which is the obviously the publisher's worst nightmare. It's a standalone. It's not, not part of a series. Um, well, just, not if it's coming from you, though. Well, I don't know, actually. I mean, you know, I had lunch with my publisher the other day, and he kept saying, when, when can I have another Bernie Gunther <laughs> novel? And, uh, I mean, I told this is, I'll tell you what I told him, which is that when you hang out with the Nazis in the books that I write, um, it can be pretty grim stuff. And the last one, frankly, was as grim as it got, really, because it was about the Cat and Forest Massacre. It was set in the Ukraine, which is obviously very timely now. Um, and when you've, I mean, there wasn't a day passed when I was writing that book when I didn't actually sort of almost smell the rotting bodies of 4,000 Polish officers myself. Um, because you've got, you've kind of got to immerse yourself in the place and the period and the time. It's like method acting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so consequently, um, I tend to sort of feel and experience all the things that my character is, is feeling up to a point. You need a vacation. I kind of, yeah. I mean, I've done nine books about the Nazis yeah. now, and I sort of feel um, it's not that I don't want to do any more. It's just that I sort of feel I, uh, like I say, I need a shower. I mean, I used what I used to do was I used to write uh, one of the Bernie Gunther novels, and then I would write one of my children's books, which were called Children of the Lamp, a series which ran for about seven, and one felt like a holiday from the other. Uh, you know, uh, after writing Bernie Gunther, it was like being in a gloomy dark basement and then when I was writing for children it was like I could go in the garden and, and sit in the sunshine and um, so one was a kind of antidote to the other. Did you also in this case need a vacation from the 1940s I mean because this now takes place takes place several decades later. Well it, it's um it doesn't have uh, reinvigorate your writing in the sense that you can reach for some metaphors that are you know chronologically um, opposite, um, you know, that I, when you're writing about something in the 1930s and 1940s, you always have to be aware of what you're doing. That you're on the lookout for the anachronism, um, and that's that's quite a strain in itself, actually. So it's nice to sort of be able to sort of mention words like sort of Twitter and and Facebook and stuff like that without you know being accused of getting something wrong. Now, Gil Martins works for the FBI. He's in the the anti-terror unit in Houston, Texas. That's not where he's originally from, though. No, he's originally... Well, he's a Scot, and um, I wanted to sort of imagine the parallel life I might have had if my father had fulfilled, I suppose, um, his his possibly true destiny. That sounds a very kind of grandiose thing to say, but my dad discovered when he was about 2021 that the people he thought were his mum and dad who lived in Edinburgh as he did were in fact his aunt and his uncle 
and his aunt and his uncle, as he thought, were in fact his mum and dad, and they lived in New York. Um, and she was a housekeeper with a rich uh, New York family, and he was the butler. It's all kind of very remains of the day, uh, with Anthony Hopkins and Emma Thompson, at least I, that's what I tell myself. Uh, Dad was the product of their uh, below-stairs romance, um, and the condition of their continuing service was that the child was sort of given elsewhere, so she gave him to her childless sister and promised to send for him, but never did. So Dad grew up, uh, well, throughout his 20s. Um, I think he bitterly regretted not being an American. He'd have loved to have been an American because he was a great American file. And, of course, at that time, you know, in the sort of... Um, I guess 1950s, being American was something mm -hmm. really valuable, you know. I mean, you didn't have to worry about um, taking your passport with you when, when you went to a Kenyan shopping mall. Um, whereas now you're wiser to leave it at home. Mm -hmm. So he, um, and also, you know, the parents he had, the, the people who brought him up in Edinburgh, he didn't much like. <laughs> <laughs> so, because um, they were, you know, typical working class Scots and they were alcoholics and um, he had a pretty tough time. So I think um, he always looked wistfully across the pond and wondered what life he might have had. And so when I, it's a very long answer to your question. However, so I feel um, I wanted to write something that might sort of take account of the American I might have been myself. So I sort of imagined, you know, a Scot who, uh, or a son of Scots parents who'd emigrated to um, to America, to Boston, um, and again, t uh, like me, a guy who'd been a lawyer, uh, but like me, who gave it up, and in his case, he gives it up um, after nine eleven because he he tires of working for a sort of white shoe firm of New York attorneys and wants to do something for his country so he joins the FBI and um, that's 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 where the story sort of starts really of course at the, prem the premise of the story at the heart of it is the question which I won't answer because I don't want to give anything away mm. which is that can prayer not only work for the good to heal the sick and bring about world peace and do whatever the prayer does can also be used for dark purposes well I mean again 9-11 sort of hangs over this book very importantly because prayer um, you may not believe in God, you may not believe in the power of prayer but the, the 15 of the 17 or even 17 actually of the 17 guys who crashed into the World Trade Center who were practicing Muslims prayed fervently uh, before they did what they did and believed that Allah had spoken to them and that Allah had answered their prayers so Prayer is a very dangerous thing. It can injure atheists and unbelievers just as it mu as much as it can believe people who are not of the same religious persuasion as you. And and so that was again that was a kind of um, motif, if you like, in the book was to explore uh, what power prayer might have. And of course, if you believe in God, if you believe in the Old Testament, for instance, the power of prayer in the Old Testament is pretty powerful stuff. I mean, you know, it's, it's off the scale of, of power, really, because Moses prays and the, the Red Sea 
parts um the walls of jericho fall down uh, when joshua prays um um i think i'm not quite sure whether lot actually prayed for the destruction of sodom and Gomorrah. i think actually he didn't i think he was hoping that god prayed for their salvation yes he did and and of course god being god uh and as he uh, to quote god himself i am an angry vengeful god um, decided uh, actually there, there wasn't one guy in um, the whole of Sodom and Gomorrah who was worth a candle. So, um, <laughs> so it's, it's pretty powerful stuff. If you believe in what's in the Old Testament, and of course a lot of people do. I find that those to all those Bible stories interesting for the same reason your book is interesting, which is from it depends on your point of view, from the if you will broadly the good guy's point of view. Prayer works and does great things. It brings down cities and it kills non-believers. Yes. But from the non-believers in the city's point of view, this is a terrible thing. This is yeah, this is a, this horrible. If you're one of those guys who's um, not getting into Noah's Ark, and you're beginning to be consumed by a great flood, then yeah, it's not it's not good. I was you know, and I'm, I, I have a very religious upbringing as a child. I went to church three times on a Sunday, which struck me as a kind of almost had a, a kind of penance-like quality because we went in the morning, my sister and I went to Sunday school in the afternoon, and in the evening we went back for the evening service. So um, religion, uh, but the, the, the crucial thing for me is, see, I stopped believing at quite an early age because I was um, a member of the Baptist church. Now, the Baptists had this weird little ceremony. Once a month they would lift the floorboards and to reveal a kind of little mini swimming pool. And someone would stand in front of the congregation and would sort of um, confess, if you like, in a kind of auto-da-fe sense, because they also wore this weird kind of shift, um, which struck me as very creepy. Um, they would sort of say that they'd invited God into their lives and then would sort of step down into the water and be baptised, as um, Christ was baptised by John the Baptist in, in the Gospels. And... I had had an early near-drowning experience when I was a kid, and um, I couldn't think of anything worse than being ducked under the water. So I'd be sitting there, you know, age nine or ten, thinking, well, this is never going to happen to me. I am never going to be baptised. I am never going to be a Christian. Uh, and therefore, although I had, had at that stage not stopped believing in God, I assumed that as a result God would not want a dialogue with me, there would be no point in having the dialogue. It was no point in having prayer. So I felt this sort of early sense of separation very uh, acutely. And of course, um, I regard that now as a kind of blessing because it enabled me to be the free thinking person that I am today in the great tradition of, of free thinking Englishmen. So I guess in that context, when Gill in your story is presented with a report, a claim that well-known atheists are kind of just dropping dead because of something that Christians are doing that are praying. This must seem to him an outlandish thought, and uh, just a, a completely unreliable and completely unbelievable. Well, he's um, he's had a religious background himself. Um, he has fallen, you know, he's he's fallen by the wayside as far as belief is concerned because. He's seen quite a lot of things in his service with the FBI that persuade him there really can't be a god. However, he has a very religious wife uh, called Ruth who uh, decides that she doesn't want her son brought up in a, a semi-atheist household. There's a scene where she discovers his cache of atheist porn, as she puts it, you know, books by Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins, um, <laughs> which is a sort of different kind of porn to the, the sort of most wives find and complain about. Um, so he's, uh, he's, he's gone through this religious sort of um, 
um, I wouldn't say rebirth, but I guess he's just felt there's no point in believing it. And then it's kind of a reverse epiphany. Yes, he's for, and he's forced to sort of, sort of start questioning his his lack of belief. This is the irony of the story. He's forced to start questioning his lack of belief. You see, his dilemma is the same dilemma that um, affects um, uh, Lieutenant Kinderman in The Exorcist, because Kinderman is investigating the murder of a, a film director, a guy who's been thrown out of a window in Georgetown. And Kinderman cannot cannot accept the only logical possibility in that kind of Holmesian sense that the girl threw him out. Um, and that is a wonderful book. It's because it, everybody always concentrates on the, the devilish aspect of it. But really, it's a solid police procedural. Um, and it's an excellent novel. It's one of my favourite novels. And, of course, it's, it is totally one of my top ten films, mm-hmm. which is filmed, what, like about two miles yes, from where yes, we are yes. now. You know, I mean, I've even contemplated going along to the to the steps in Georgetown just to have a look, you know, as a sort of true film buff would. <laughs> They're still there, and many people have their pictures taken there. But there's a... Do they have them lying on the ground? I mean, I sort of, I sort of feel my head should be sort of twisted at an opposite angle, you know. Maybe I should do a yoga position there to sort of get the full sense. There's an Exxon station next door, so you can't miss where the location is. Uh, but it strikes me that, that, that you have to strike, you as the writer of a story like this, you have to strike a very careful balance between is this a supernatural book? Is this a police procedural? Is this a thriller? Uh, there is, you don't want to put in too much religion so that you're proselytizing or, or preaching, but there has to be this very skillful stew involving all those ingredients. Well, the, yes, and that's the, I mean, it is a kind of very delicate sort of balancing act that you have to perform because i mean i i tried to make it a sort of solid priest police procedural um and even even sort of even to the extent of making it just very slightly dull so that you wouldn't actually suspect what was going to happen was going to happen um but to me that's the sort of essence of the true gothic story in in the tradition of sort of edgar Allan poe and mr james it's the sense that you know um by the pricking of my thumbs, something wicked this way comes. And I sort of wanted to sort of, I mean, in a sense, when you get something really modern, when you create, you created this very modern, efficient world where um, there are no questions, um, everything is, is rational, um, it, it becomes, I, I, it, it's, it's quite an act, it's quite a feat of creative writing to, to start making something like that creepy and scary. Uh, and for me, that's the challenge as the writer is to make something scary that's set in the, in a very modern, rational, glossy world like Houston. So if, when you're writing Bernie Gunther, if you can almost smell those rotting Polish corpses, mm. when you're writing Gil Martins and his attempts to figure out what's really going on here, are you mm. feeling something kind of creepy and otherworldly then, too? Um, a little bit, yeah. I mean... Um, I went to, I mean, I did my research fairly conscientiously. I went to Houston, I hung out with the FBI, I went to several mega churches, I took a couple of trips down to Galveston, which was, actually Galveston was really kind of the surprise, because that was a kind of, this was a couple of years ago, and it really was a wasteland. It was like something out of T.S. Eliot. And um, it struck a chord with me, a really powerful chord, actually. So it was all too easy to sort of imagine um, someone who was kind of derelict of hope, um, abandoned in Galveston. And uh, and really that was the sort of part that I was able to sort of 
uh, get in touch with was the the, the sense when Gill is finds himself sort of slightly exiled in mm-hmm. in Galveston. It, again, it's you you're looking for a sort of creepy location. And if you like, I was looking for a, a location that was the sort of equal of Georgetown, Georgetown mm-hmm. uh, because there's a sense of old, mm-hmm. of, of age about uh, Georgetown, and equally the sense of Galveston as well. It's almost a place, as I suggest in the story, and I hope the people of Galveston will forgive me, but a, a place that had been abandoned by God. Um, and you drive around Galveston and you cannot get the any other impression i would i would suggest if not abandoned by god then certainly abandoned by the federal government yes. that's true. listen i have so many more things i want to ask you too but i'm running out of time already is there anything else that you wanted to add or anything you thought i should ask you about the book that i didn't not at all no no i mean i just to stress that oh, you know i've got my children's book out mm-hmm. which is called the winter horses which is set in the ukraine in 1943 uh and it's the holocaust for novel for children I'd always wanted to write uh, because I wasn't satisfied with the ones that existed already uh, you know without naming names um, small children who arrived at Auschwitz were killed on the first day and they were not given opportunities to go and play by the wire so um, I wanted to write about uh, something that seemed a little bit more real um, and, and and so I did and it's as I say it's set in the Ukraine and Crimea which of course when I wrote it, it didn't really uh, only mattered in a, an in a historical sense. But of course, now that history is sort of uh, repeating itself, it's all too easy, I think, to explain why the Russians want to hang on to the Crimea. It's not for reasons of Russian expansionism and imperialism. It's because a million Russian soldiers died uh, defeating the German army in the Crimea. I've been finding to my surprised delight that i'm signing as many copies of my children's book as i am of my adult book so this is my uh fourth or fifth american book tour i always think there's only one thing worse than doing an american book tour and that's not being asked to do an american book tour because then you know that your publisher really sort of doesn't really have that much faith in in the book so i've you know as long as i keep being asked i'll keep keep doing it and uh you know, I remember I, 30 years ago, when I, well, 25 years ago, when I first started, I had given my right arm to be uh, on an American book tour. So if ever I get sort of self-pitying and think, oh, my God, you know, if this is Friday, it must be Washington, tomorrow I've got Washington, then I just tell myself how lucky I am. Prayer by Philip Kerr is published by Putnam with Eye on Books by Bill Thompson.